Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, we're going to be talking about loving your work today. As a matter of fact, our quotation is, work is love made visible. Now, I'm going to give you the rest of that in a little bit. Is that the way you feel about your work? It's love made visible? Well, I suspect some of you don't feel that way. You know, just um, well, last night, as I'm recording this, it was last night, I did a teleseminar on My Work, My Life. And we had over a thousand people register for that, had lots and lots, had hundreds of questions that came in. But the questions, the framing of the questions surprised me. Now, we'll deal with some of those today, but that was a teleseminar I'll actually link to that because it dealt specifically with, with how to start a business. But instead of people asking, what kind of a license do I need? What kind of insurance do I need? How many square feet do I need? How much inventory do I need? How many employees do I need to hire? I didn't get any of that. I didn't get any of the real logistics about how to start a business. The questions I got, and I grouped them before I started the teleseminar, grouped them into categories like these, fear of starting. That was probably the number one grouping of questions that came in about starting a business. It's just simply the fear of stepping out of the norm, doing something non-traditional, something that they haven't done before, stepping into something you haven't done before. Wow. I mean, I look for opportunities to do that. I look for ways to, I mean, Joanne knows that if we go somewhere, it's not likely I'll come home the same way. I'm going to figure out another way to see something new, see something I haven't seen before. And even in short trips where we go places familiar around here, I often take a back road, go a different direction. But anyway, fear of starting. Number, another thing that was a big category was how to create a clear focus. Oftentimes people say, well, I have a lot of ideas. How would I possibly choose one? How do you narrow down, even if it feels artificial, to focus on something so you can get some traction in one area? Another big area, big, big area, and we deal with it here in the podcast a lot, questions every week that deal with this, serving, ministry, or making money. How can you mix, can you really have all of those? Can you have a servant's heart? Can you do ministry and still make money? Well, you know my response on that. I hope I've given plenty of examples over the years about how to do exactly that. I mean, I consider my business a ministry. Yeah, we're able to give and help and support in all kinds of ways, but it's because we have areas of the business that are very profitable. That's the only way you can do that. If you only give, it'll empty your cup and you can't give from an empty cup. Well, other questions had to do with coaching, speaking, and writing, people knowing my focus and what I do. We had a lot of questions dealt with that. How to do that? How to launch? How to start making money right away? And of course, with those coaching, speaking, writing, the quickest way to make money is to coach. You can start coaching this afternoon and get paid for that. It's hard to get a speaking engagement because speaking engagements are going to be booked six to 12 months out. And if you're going to write, now you can write a little ebook and put that up on Kindle. But if you're really going to write a major piece and work with a publisher, you're talking about a couple years there. So yeah, how, how do you do that? How do you stage those things? You can do them all, but you're probably going to stage those as they build traction in each of the categories. And then how to productively use time. 
lot of people said, yeah, I'm doing, you know, I'm working, I'm doing a little side thing, but you know, I'm trying to be a daddy or a wife and mommy or daddy as well. I mean, how do I do all those things? So those are the kind of things we covered. I'll put a link to that again. It was just curious to me that instead of getting real business logistic questions, I got the emotional, philosophical, psychological, spiritual questions, which certainly are important. Now, also in doing that, just a quick kind of recap, one of the things that I addressed in there was I had questions from people who said, you know, I've been doing my own thing, but I really miss the team environment that I had when I was working a real job. Believe me, it's not a sign of failure or going back or giving up. If you have been doing something on your own, you decide to go get a real job. No, it's just a different work model. If you realize that works best for you, my goodness, appreciate the fact that you were able to experience some other work models and go back to what it is that fits you well. No shame in doing that. Believe me, no shame at all. Great variety of questions. As the questions here always are, we get some great ones today that I want to deal with. But here are some of the ones that I'm going to try to get through in our brief time today. Should I dumb down my resume in order to get a job? Is that ever appropriate? Well, we'll talk about that. How about this one? Dan, I have ADD, so I'll always be poor. Oh, baby, I can't wait to get to that one. Dan, what are the basic components of running a mastermind group? Well, I just launched a new one and love the concept. Written a lot about it, studied a lot, so we'll talk about that. Someone says, Dan, please share your definition and thoughts about taking a leap of faith. Love the term. We'll look at that. And then, should I agree to train others what to do what I do and ultimately lose my job? That's an interesting scenario that a lot of people have been confronted with where they've been asked to train new people, people who will be paid much less to do their job, knowing that it leads to the termination of their job. How do you handle that? Well, here's our quotation. Comes from Cahil Gibran. You probably already recognized that as I led into it. But it is this. Work is love made visible. And if you cannot work with love, but only with distaste, it is better that you should leave your work and sit at the gate of the temple and take alms of those who work with joy. For if you bake bread with indifference, you bake a bitter bread that feeds but half man's hunger. And if you grudge the crushing of the grapes, your grudge distills a poison in the wine. And if you sing though as angels and love not the singing, you muffle man's ears to the voices of the day and the voices of the night. Well, that's a pretty powerful message for us. Work is love made visible. I love just that portion of it. Think about that when you start work tomorrow morning. Love is, or work is love made visible. Well, we'll go into the questions here. Got some success stories that I want to share. I also want to just remind you, we're going to be opening up registration for Innovate, the event that has been just an outrageous uh, success for us. We get stories coming in. We have people, people writing in stories about success saying, Hey, if you have to sell a kidney, go ahead and do that. You, you can live without a kidney, but your life will never be the same. If you don't go to innovate, we've had some hilarious testimonials from people who have been here and have had their lives transformed. I talked to a lady in 
in Las Vegas a couple weeks ago at New Media Expo. A couple was there, and they had been at Innovate last September. She came just to support her husband, wasn't interested in doing anything herself. She was so transformed by what she heard. She went home and really transformed their family life, started their own little Innovate Academy to teach their teach their kids in innovative ways, education through, let's see, education through experience and creativity, I think is what she has as a subtitle for her little school. But I love those kind of stories. But anyway, we're going to open the doors to registration. You can't register if you're listening before February 3rd, because we're going to do this just like getting Rolling Stones tickets, I guess, where we open registration on February 3rd at 10 o'clock. We can take 48 people. That's it. Now, we know that we could move to bigger venues, and there's a lot of good business reasons for doing that. But it's in having that limited to 48 people that it creates the unique experience that people talk about. Coming here to the sanctuary, it's not in the middle of concrete and asphalt like you normally go to a conference. It's out in the country. We have horses on three sides of us. We have you know, granddaughters will be going down the zip line. You know, we walk around the nature trail and pick mulberries or raspberries, depending on the time of the year. And look at the water features that we've got on our property that we've had put in over the years. So there's a lot of things that can't be duplicated by being in a big conference area. And thus we keep it small. So it's going to be 48 people only. If you want this to be the year that you come at the one in March, we're going to do the unveiling of the eagle that I've been talking about. We're going to have an artist who's on location here creating a project, actually creating a sign for the end of the sanctuary lane that she'll be working on. Ken Davis, famous comedian, is going to be here to talk about how to do a dynamic presentation. No matter what your content, you got to know how to how to present about it. Of course, Mike Hyatt will be here. Chad Jeffers, guitarist, will be here. Uh, Dorsey McHugh, the internationally known artist, will be here along with my wife, Joanne, who they'll be talking about how to leverage your art if that's your creative expression. Anyway, cool stuff coming up. Don't miss it. February 3rd, 10 o'clock, registration opens. Those spots will go fast. We'd love to see you here. Now, here's some of the stories that I've gotten in this week. Leslie says, Dan, I just want to thank you for your gifts and all you do to help others find our passion. I followed you for years, read your books, listened to the podcast. Last July, I enrolled in the 48 Days Challenge, and that inspired me to complete the book I had begun but not finished. She goes through and talks about she had uh, wanted a book about uh, people coming out of the military and re-engaging, but she's now been able to, she says, the 48 Days Challenge gave me the push I needed to complete the book and self-publish it through Inspiring Voices Publishing. I'm just a few hours away from completing an accompanying leader's guide. Thank you so much for being a positive voice an advocate for identifying our God-given talents and boldly following our dreams. Well, thank you, Leslie, for your note, and I congratulate you on taking action. I can give you lots of information, but I can't force you to take action. But that's one of the, the fun things that we've had over the years with the 48 Days kind of branding is that when somebody is exposed to material from us, we, in essence, start the clock ticking. In 48 days, you can have a major transformation in your life if you create a plan and act on it. Here's a couple more. Hi, Dan. I wanted to pass on some encouragement for Zig, the 26-year-old visually impaired gentleman whose request you read last week. Now, last week we had a question from somebody, Zig, who said, 
know, he felt like his options were really limited. He was working in a factory. He's visually impaired. Wasn't sure he really had any other options open to him. I gave him some resources then, some certainly some encouragement. But this this comes from, um, well, I can't, I didn't copy the name here. I apologize about that. But anyway, an encouragement who says, I'm legally blind, 33, and I'm working as a well-paid information technology administrator. While the job is financially rewarding, it's not my life's calling, just a pit stop in between adventures. Having earned my master's in history at Oxford University, I'm now applying to PhD programs in English. My passion is to teach people to become better readers, writers, and thinkers. My point is that even with a visual impairment, you can follow your passion and even achieve some success along the way. I do use lots of the assistive technology that Dan mentioned, and I've been able to leverage my ability to use this technology into other jobs along the way, including a brief stint at Apple Retail. So as Dan says, figure out your passion and just go for it. American Foundation for the Blind also has a mentor site, which can put you in touch with a blind or visually impaired mentor already working in the field you're aspiring to. All right, and he says, Dan, feel free to give my email address to Zig. Let him know how I'd like to help in any way I can. Well, thanks for that encouragement. I'll certainly connect you with Zig, and thanks so much for your encouraging assistance. Now, I've got one more here. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, and I'm not going to give the lady's name. It's somebody that I know well. She's been here for events. She's in our coaching mastery program, and she said, Dan, I just want to touch base with you after today's call. We had a call yesterday. uh, conference call with the people in our coaching mastery program and she says this is an update on my life as well as my business one year ago i went to coaching with excellence and had already become part of the coaching mastery group it was a last ditch effort to try to create something with my coaching business i knew that my direct sales business was fading and was no longer a fit for me due to the extensive fees legal fees through my seven-year divorce process i was almost to the point of living on savings I came to the sanctuary scared and feeling alone and as if life was not ever going to get better. But as I sat with you, heard you speak, and was surrounded by like-minded people, my belief in myself was reignited. You told me the only thing that was holding me back was confidence in myself. I went home determined to capture that belief. I began to implement your systems and ideas with a few of my own. I went to speak it forward with Ken Julian, joined his mastermind, began to communicate with 48 Days members. As the year unfolded, I continued to work in my business, and uh, the big mo that Darren Hardy talks about began to happen. Momentum is about to take over, and I'm so excited and grateful. I've increased my coaching business, added several new clients last year. Right now, I have five, and it feels like a good balance for the rest of my life. I started speaking about DISC, training on it in my style, which is the gifts of the personalities. Today, I met with a real estate branch owner who's considering me to do her training for all of her team. Most exciting for me, and in part, it's because I'm out there speaking, training. I was asked to partner with two other businesswomen in town to open up a new business chamber. So I agreed. We launched next month. She talks about all the things that she's done there. These are all the wonderful things, but most importantly, through the last year, I've learned to believe in myself, trust the world again in ways that I never thought would be possible. I would have never had the courage or belief in myself to move out of my comfort zone without you and the 48 days community. Thanks. Well, Jill, thanks so much for your, your letter. It moved me to tears as I read it. I know the dramatic changes that you've done, but it's been, uh, again, we can provide the information, but it's you taking the initiative, creating a plan and acting on that, that brings about 
those changes in your life. And congratulations on that. Well, there you go. Some more of the champions. If you want to be on the list of champions, just uh, shoot me an email. AskDan at 48days.com. Or you can go to the 48 Days site, click on the podcast link, and put it in there in the little form. We'd love to hear your story about what you're doing to move forward. What is it that's making you a champion? Because you're creating a plan and taking action on it. That's what we want to hear. Well, there we go. Man, every time I play that song, it brings back memories of when we were racing bicycles with our kids because I used to play that on loudspeakers at our racing events a lot. I would MC a lot of the race, the bicycle motocross races, and I'd, I'd play that. Of course, Queen also has that song, Bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bike. So we would use that, but we would use, we are the champions to encourage the kids on all the time. Now, here's a question. This comes from Cape Town, South Africa. As I have ADD, I have never been able to get any education after school and struggled tremendously in my finance career that I was forced into. I've been through four jobs in five years, never seemed to keep up with the financial industry and my career due to ADD. My passion and work I love was never about money. I'll have to take a huge pay cut to do what I love and which I don't mind. But how do I convince my wife, friends and parents that it's just me? As there's so much responsibilities and pressure to be rich instead of living my passion by doing work I love. What do I tell them when I sell my car, etc., because I want to live out a passionate life that I love and can't keep up with how the rich live? What do you think? That comes from Christian in Cape Town, South Africa. As ADD, so to live out his passion... He's going to be poor the rest of his life. Well, Christian, I I hear your heart on this, but you simply can make choices. Having ADD doesn't prevent you from having all the education that you want. Having ADD does certainly not destine you to be in low-paying jobs. Following your passion should open the door to as much wealth as you want. It should not restrict you in any way. Now, I say that after a lot of years of working with people who are doing very unusual things that they've chosen because it is their passion, yet if it really is a fit for how God has gifted them and something that uses their greatest talent, money seems to show up in unexpected ways. Now, when you think about the people who have ADD out there, I'll give you some names of some people here, but you know, there's a whole lot of people who have ADD. A lot of people discover it as adults where it wasn't diagnosed properly when they were children. And so it was, it, it really was diagnosed in later life. And they look back and say, Oh wow, that explains a lot. We have people like Jim Carrey. Now think about some of these people, Jim Carrey, Tom Cruise, Sylvester Stallone, Robin Williams, Whoopi Goldberg, Henry Winkler. Now think about just those. Those are just a few actors. What if they had not had ADD? What if they had been good students so they could sit in the chair and color inside the lines and do what good students do 
Well, you wouldn't even know what their names are. I mean, Robin Williams still sees things upside down and backwards. It's a very difficult time reading. What do you do when you're a little kid and a teacher asks you to stand up and read and you get the words all jumbled and all the kids laugh at you? You become the class clown. By golly, I'll just make these kids laugh. Well, that seems to have worked pretty well for Robin Williams. But it was because he has ADD that it allowed him to explore some opportunities that other kids missed. Famous athletes, you know, it goes on and on and on with ADD. Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Terry Bradshaw, Babe Ruth, Vince Lombardi. Artist with recognized ADD, Pablo Picasso, Ansel Adams, Vincent Van Gogh, Salvador Dali. I mean, business people, boy, there's all kinds of business tycoons with ADD. Ted Turner, Bill Gates, Malcolm Fords, Andrew Carnegie, Walt Disney. These are all people with ADD. Famous inventors, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Edison, Wilbur Wright, Alexander Graham Bell. Musicians, we could go on and on and on. I mean, a lot of times people who don't read well are drawn to music because it's a way to communicate without having to sit and read a book. So John Lennon, Elvis Presley, Beethoven, Mozart, Handel, all people with recognized ADD. Now, I could go on and on and on. I don't need to go on with all the, the, the list of everybody that we've got. But it's amazing the people that we know who have ADD don't use that as an excuse for being poor. There's no connection. Now, if you want to grow dandelions and live down by the river, and you say that's your passion, yeah, then you'll have to deal with what kind of lifestyle that leads to. But that's just a personal choice. That's not determined by having ADD or ADHD or bipolar or any of those wonderful terms that culture likes to put on kids or people who don't color inside the lines, people who don't act normal. And I've done a lot of reading on this, having a son who's severely ADD, dyslexic. We did a lot of study as we tried to help him release his best talents. And he's gone on to be a world changer. He's not living in a cave somewhere and being poor because of his ADD. And so just don't accept that. Don't accept that as the reality of your life. Now, the fact that you don't handle financial data well and don't fit into a normal job, yeah, that's not surprising at all. A lot of people, well, I wouldn't fit into that. But don't think that that means you have to move down in terms of lifestyle and income and opportunity. I mean, in many ways, a lot of people would look at you, I mean, take a Richard Branson or somebody, they would look at you and say, my gosh, yeah, the thing that's holding you down is not your ADD. The thing that's holding you down is trying to maintain yourself in a traditional job. Except that is a reality. Get out of there, explore what things really do fit you, and then put legs on those and take action. You can move into any level of success that you want. Adam says, and I'm starting up a mastermind group with myself and three other guys. I was wondering if you could go over some of the basic components of running one of these and how the meetings should be conducted. We're planning our first meeting over breakfast to get to know one another. Well, yeah, I, I, I love the idea of a mastermind. I just launched a brand new one that I'm in. I'm part of a couple ones, but we just launched a brand new 
Mastermind, invited a few people to be part of that. I'm excited about that. Now, the, the one that I just started, we're going to do differently. So when you say, what are the basic components of running one of these? I keep trying new things. Most of the masterminds that I've been in have been where we get together once a week. Personally, I mean, physically in the same room, we get together once a week and do things together, you know, study books together, whatever. That's been the kind of masterminds I've been in. This new one has connected people who are high achievers and it has nothing to do with geography. So we have people in South America and in England and in Washington state and in New York and Florida and California, different places. I could look exactly. I'll be doing that in the next day or so. I'll actually be looking at the places represented. It's only a group of 48 people. And no surprise, I suppose. But, the, but see, that's bigger than any mastermind I've ever put together. So I'm just trying something new. Now, we're going to have, with the online communication that we've got, we can have daily communication in any way that people want it. People can go into a video room, I mean, just from their own computer, and enter a video conversation with other people at any given time. You can start a discussion and get the input and advice of other people there. We are going to get together here at the sanctuary twice a year for a day and a half where everybody will come together here. But those are just some new components. So when you say the basic components of running a mastermind, it can vary. Now, the best overview that I've got of that is the online course that I put up called The Ultimate Advantage, and it's on Udemy. If you just go to Udemy, as a matter of fact, I'll put a link to that in the radio show notes today, a link to the Udemy course, where you can go right there and download that, and it goes through. There's eight modules where I walk through how to select members, how to meet, what to discuss, how to get rid of members if you don't want them in, all of those things that ought to be part of that. Yeah, I love the concept. I love hearing from so many of you who have taken the initiative to launch a mastermind. I mean, the old, it was always a, a common thread where people would hear about, you know, the mastermind group that Dave Ramsey and I had started or others. And well, how can I be in that? Well, you can't, you know, those are closed groups. You can't have an open-ended mastermind and have it really be effective. But my encouragement always was, well, start your own, just start your own group. Ask a couple other people, like Adam is asking here, three other guys, you get four people in a group, fantastic. Start your own mastermind group. But yeah, do it right. Do it in a way that you don't look back and regret the way you did it. Go to that Udemy course that I've got on the ultimate advantage, and I really lay out there how to do it. Well, this comes from Blake, who says, how do you recommend getting a government job when all the state and federal agencies go through a third party to advertise? Every time you contact a person specifically, they tell you they're not hiring. And to go to USA job site or something of that nature, they refuse to take any part in the process in any way, shape or form. There are several positions that I could work well in the government sector and can't seem to get any response from anyone other than rejection. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm going to give you my real gut level response to start with, but then I'll try to help you with your question, Blake. But my first question is, in as much as it's very difficult to get into a government position, why would you want to? I mean, I really have a hard time understanding why that would be an attractive focus for a job search. Um, I mean, any of the agencies that you could mention, if it's the post office or the IRS or city or state government, and I know we need good 
people there, and I have to be careful in how I frame this, I just can't imagine that being a desirable endpoint for a job search of my own. It doesn't seem to be an upward direction in a person's career, but rather a kind of a, a landing point to just get that paycheck and pension if it ever shows up. Now, that being said, obviously, I, I really gave you a distorted view of getting a job with the state and federal agencies. If you want to do that, then make that part of a professional job search. Don't make that the only source, the only direction where you're looking. Make that one of 20 where you're looking at other companies and state or federal agencies just happen to be one or two of the companies that you have on your list of 30 to 40 that you're doing in your job search. That way you level the playing field because we can't control what happens in those agencies, how they work, how they make hiring decisions. There's too many things that we, you have no control over. So don't frustrate yourself by making that the only focus of your job search. Put a couple of those on there, go through the hoops. They're going to require you to do exactly as they're saying. You're going to have to fill out online applications, go to certain agencies. It's a long, tedious process to go through. Not much connection with the way the real world works, but uh, that's what they do. And if you want to have a job there, you want to get a job at your local library, yeah, it's going to be a tedious process. Now, don't be afraid to do things that are creative even there, like I mentioned in the job search strategy that I lay out, you know, in the 48 days process, where show up, just show up and talk to people who are already working there. Find out who makes decisions. I mean, they'll do a lot of violating the rules if you're somebody they want on their team. So find a department where you'd like to work and talk to the person in charge there and tell them they can short circuit all that tedious paperwork and process if they want to. So do a great job of presenting yourself. You're selling yourself if you're getting a job. So what you want to do is develop rapport and trust. That's the first part of any selling process. Identify the need, identify what you bring to the table that would be valuable skills to help them help that person, that decision maker, help their work be easier. So don't just show up with your hand out begging for a job. They don't need to give you a job. They don't want to take the time to even consider you. But if you show up and convince them you are a superstar, they're going to lose out if they don't have you on their team. You know, they'll make it work. They'll get you through that morass of decisions. Now, here's an example. Vanderbilt University is the largest private employer here in Nashville. They have about 14,000, 15,000 employees. So they're a big player. If you want to get a job there, and of course, they're really big. So they get lots of applications. They get three, 400 applications every day. You can go to their human resource department and fill out an application. They scan your resume and application looking for keywords based on a combination of keywords. They may or may not forward that to a particular department where there could be a possible match. That's how it works. It's a tedious, non-personal, technology-driven process. I've helped lots of people get jobs at Vanderbilt by doing this. Where do you want to work? You want to work in the oncology department where they do research? Fantastic. Walk in, talk to the person in charge, tell them exactly what you want to do and why you're a candidate to be part of that team. They're the ones making the ultimate decisions. They'll bypass all that paperwork. You don't have to go through personnel or human resources to get a job there. 
just go to the person making a decision. They'll help you short circuit all of that. So be careful about just going by the rules or by all those guidelines that you're given. I mean, you're going to be convinced nobody's hiring and the economy is bad. No, just get out there, do things differently, and you'll be amazed at the opportunities that start appearing. Paul asked, as it re- pertains to making work-related life changes, please share your definition and thoughts about taking a leap of faith. Thanks so much for all the hope and encouragement you provide through your wonderful work. Well, thanks for your note, Paul. My definition and thoughts about taking a leap of faith. I love the concept. I love that term, taking a leap of faith. But it does imply some specific things. Taking a leap of faith does not mean going to Las Vegas and putting the title of one of my cars down on a roll of the dice. That's risky. That's not a leap of faith in the the way that I recommend or define it at all. That's just being stupid. That's just throwing your cards up in the wind and seeing where they land. And that's what a lot of people think is involved in like starting your own business. It's risky, Dan, you know, at least I'm getting a paycheck. Yeah, my job stinks, but at least I'm getting a paycheck and have a retirement fund. Starting something on my own would be risky. Well, that's not the way the research shows it to be played out. Thomas Stanley, the academician and wonderful writer, researcher who wrote books like The Millionaire Next Door and The Millionaire Mind, when he did his research, he looked at what do those people define as risk? Now, the average person thinks that if you have a job, you're secure. My gosh, they give me a paycheck once a week. I've got a 401k contribution. They even pay medical benefits at this point. Yeah, I've heard they're going to pull some of that stuff, but, you know, I'm hanging in there. That's security. If I go down here and buy a hot dog cart, pay $1,500 for a hot dog cart, and go down on 2nd Avenue here in Franklin, Tennessee, wow. I may have 376 people come by, you know, and buy my hot dogs. That would be really risky. You know what DECA millionaires think about that? Thomas Stanley and his research talked to DECA millionaires, people worth at least $10 million. They view that scenario exactly in the reverse way. They say, oh my gosh, you're going to go into work tomorrow where one person can put you on the street before noon? That's risky. If you get a little hot dog cart and you go down here and you have 376 people coming by and buying your hot dogs, you have one people person that decides they don't want to do business with you anymore. No big deal. You have 10 people that don't want to do business with you anymore. No big deal. You just promote and replace those people. You have to have 376 people make a decision not to do business with you anymore to put you out of work. That's security like you'll never experience in a job. Again, I'm not knocking a job. I say you need to choose what works best for you. But sometimes the things we think are risky are really not. Sometimes the biggest risk is not taking one. Now, as for a leap of faith, here's how I frame this. In No More Dreaded Mondays, I go through the five predictors of success that we see time and time again. Incidentally, this relates to our question about ADD as well, Christian head. What does it take to really be successful? Number one, passion. Number two, determination. Number three, talent. 
Number four, self-discipline. Number five, faith. Now that's where I would put leap, leap of faith is right there at the end. If you have passion, determination, talent, self-discipline, and in using those, you've created a clear plan for what you're moving into, you've reduced risk dramatically simply by creating a clear plan, then you do have to still take a step of faith, a leap of faith. But it's only after you've done a whole lot of things right. Remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harrison Ford? There's that dramatic 45-second scene. I actually pulled it up when I was looking at my notes for the podcast here. I wish I could convey it, but with the audio, there's not much sound. It's mainly visual, but Harrison Ford, you know, he's gone through the gauntlet. He's gone through all those things. He knows God has given him vision and direction and gotten him to where he is, and then he comes to that unbelievable chasm, and he's like, well, there's nobody in the world that could jump across that. How is this possible that all the things lined up, I did all the right things, planned, did everything, no God directed my steps, here I am, and obviously I'm going to die if I step over the edge here. And he thought, wait a minute, there's got to be something that I'm not seeing. Even though I can't see it, I need to step out anyway. And he steps out, pretty sure he's going to fall to his death, and you know what happens, the path appears. He hits the path, his feet hit the path that he couldn't see a second before, and he walks across that big chasm on the path that's there. That's a leap of faith, but it comes after you've made the preparation, after you've gotten yourself ready so that you can be confident. It's not blind faith. It's the next step in a process that led you up to that. Great question. God, I love dealing with that. Well, Toby asked, Dan, thanks for all your amazing work helping people to earn a living through living out their passions. I'm the primary income provider for our young family of five and have a passion for growing plants and teaching others to do the same. Listening to you and Dave Ramsey for the last year, I think I understand how you would recommend getting started with our own business, but I'm challenged to overcome how to start in a capital intensive idea. I've been a horticulture professional for the past 25 years. I've managed large growing operations and understand it well. However, starting in our backyard and reinvesting income to keep growing seems like it would take forever to be able to replace our current income, which is already barely making ends meet. I don't have any ideas on how we can overcome this initial obstacle. Thanks again. Well, Toby, if you understand horticulture and you understand how to grow plants and you can teach other people to do that, I mean, we just set the stage there for a whole lot of different ways that you can share your message. Let's take coaching for an example, and I'll come right back to your growing plants. If I'm a coach and I want to help people through career transitions, then I have a core message. The same principles that I use to help people through a difficult transition, when they're sitting right here with me at my desk and we're mapping things out for them. Those same principles can be shared with a whole lot of people in a whole lot of different ways. So if I put to get that together in an ebook, wow, people can access that information. If I put it in a traditional book, if I do a little audio recording, if I put together an instructional manual, if I do a workshop or seminar, or if I train other coaches to do the same thing, 
Those are all ways to leverage that same message. That's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the non-capital intensive ways of sharing your message. So if you are great at growing tulips or irises, just growing those and showing other people how to do that as well is one application. That's one way. But you could do everything that I just described. You could put together a little book. You could have an online site. You could have, you know, there, there's a, a site. You can check it out. There's a site online that is for herb lovers. Now, these are people who enjoy growing plants. I mean, that, that's all it is. It's people who enjoy growing plants. So they share their ideas about growing herbs. Well, they, this couple made it possible for other people to join this little site. They pay $10 a month. Not a big deal. $10 a month to come and learn about growing herbs and to share their ideas with other people. They have about 3,000 members. Not a big group. We're not talking New York Times bestseller list. Or anything. We're just talking 3,000 people around the world who like to talk about their herbs together. Well, I don't know if you can do the math on what I just described, but at $10 a month with 3,000 members in a year, that's $360,000. I suspect from what you're saying that that's a little more than you're netting currently. You know, sometimes sharing information about the how-to is more profitable than actually doing the work itself. And I've got a lot of stories about that. I had a gal one time who was a nurse, frustrated nurse. We got her out of that. She'd wanted to be an interior decorator. And her parents said, no, don't do that. You're going to be a nurse. That way you'll never be without a job. Well, she was never without a job and she was never without a job that she hated, but there we go. That's the way it unfolds sometime. But she started a little gift basket business. Well, she very quickly got a deal to do 133 gift baskets for the country music awards identical baskets. Then there was a Taco Bell managers convention that came to town and she did 4,600 gift baskets, identical. Ashley helped her set up the assembly line to get those done. And I told her, I said, you know what? Your information about how you were getting these major accounts is more valuable to you than doing the work itself. She put together a couple little videos. She started being a highly sought after speaker at gift basket conventions and leveraged her information about how to do the business into extraordinary income rather than the peanuts she was getting from just doing the work daily. That's where you can go with your horticulture ideas, expand your ideas so you can share your talent in ways other than just having your hands in the dirt. This one, uh, this comes from Ed, who says, thanks for your recent word for me to keep knocking on doors. I made some good traction and sales in the last few weeks. Great way to start the new year and the new business. Now, this is interesting because he's talking about selling style. He says, I just listened to interview number 458 from Entrepreneur on Fire with John Lee Dumas, where he interviews Oren Kalf, investment banker and author of Pitch Anything. I've not read the book yet, but in the interview, Oren Contrast pitching a deal from a posture of neediness and supplication versus catching more of an image, casting more of an image of catch me if you can, because I may not have time for you. He went on to say, people want what they can't have. They chase what moves away from them and the only value that which they pay for. 
Now he's talking about, it's talking about is there are the things in that that he can use in his sales presentations. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you can use scarcity and urgency, I mean, I use that all the time in my coaching. You know, one of my first questions is, you know, convince me that this is a right fit for you. Are you sure that what I offer in the Eagles club coaching is really going to help you get the clarity that you want? I make them tell me why my process is going to work for them. I mean, how cool is that? If we offer a new mastermind group, there's scarcity and urgency. We're going to close applications Monday at 448 which is exactly what we did. There's only 48 people that are going to be accepted. So I may have to call you and tell you that in as much as you'd like to be in, you know, it's not going to work in this particular time. I mean, wow, how powerful is that? When I tell you that we're going to open the doors for registration for Innovate on February 3rd, Monday at 10 o'clock, how have I set that up? I've already told you, we're going to let 48 people attend that and that's it. Does that create a different kind of selling than me just showing up and saying, wow, you really ought to come to this innovate thing. You know, if you pay us a bunch of money, you, you can come to this and we hope you have a good time. We just don't do that. We set it up differently. And yeah, I, I don't know what you're selling Ed, but I'm confident you can do the same kind of thing where you go out with a presentation, knowing that what you have is a great product or service. You're sharing your enthusiasm about that. And you're confident that if people do not participate, if people do not purchase and engage with you, they're going to lose out and you're going to feel bad about that. You can let them know that. So you can, you can change. It doesn't matter if you're selling water softeners or encyclopedias or fertilizer, you know, set it up so that, yeah, it's like, catch me if you can, you know, is this a good fit for you? You know, do I want to work with you as a customer? Great way to set it up. Hey, one more real quick. Troy says, Dan, great to meet you at New Media Expo. I have a day job I mostly enjoy. Last year, took upon myself the job of directing our social media efforts while there was a change in our marketing department. I negotiated a monthly stipend and it works out to be several thousand dollars a year. Now that the department is stabilized, it is expected that I train the department in social media best practices and eventually lose that stipend. Do I explain my concerns over losing that income to my boss, offer to keep doing it, involve the department instead of handing it over, or resign myself to the lost income? Thanks for your advice. Well, Troy, my advice is you want to continue giving and serving way beyond the expectations. If you pull back in the reins and you're going to try to keep some information for yourself so nobody knows how to do it, so that you make yourself indispensable in that way, nah. Make yourself indispensable because you're the guy that brings new ideas to the table all the time. You're the guy guy that shares readily how other people can be more successful and how the company can be more successful. That has way more potential for moving you up and keeping you around than you holding back information about social media because you don't want anybody else to know how to do it. Absolutely. Share, share readily over and over again. Well, we had fun today talking about some of the common themes. Should I dumb down my resume in order to get a job? Yeah, no no problem. If you want to dumb it down, take off a degree or two, you know, do what's effective. You want your resume to be a sales tool for where you want to go. You're not locked into any particular thing, even if you have particular degrees or work experience behind your name. Shape your resume so it works to open the doors that you want open. And then we talked about ADD. 
You think you'll be poor because you have ADD? No, you may be poor because you don't have ADD. (laughs) It'd be more likely to work in that way. Not having ADD will keep you poor because you'll just do normal things. Having ADD opens up some amazing new possibilities. Well, you know my feelings about Mastermind. We talked about that. Cool stuff there. Make sure you're part of a Mastermind group. If you haven't been invited to be in one, big deal. Start your own. Invite a few people. Make your own Mastermind. Well, that's how, it, that's how we do it around here. We're an excited group of people. Thanks for being part of this gang of people where we are, in fact, creating or finding work that is meaningful, purposeful, productive, and profitable.